Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One, in one way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Welcome back to the Fast Radio Bursts. I'm Connor Stone, and today we're gonna try something a little different. We're doing our very first astronomer interview. Here with us today is Akanksha. Please say hi. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having me. Hi, Akanksha. Thanks for being here. This is very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I um, love the name of the podcast. I thought that was really creative. Thanks. Yeah, that was, that was fun to put together. So, Akanksha, you come to us from the University of Toronto, where you, uh, where you completed your Bachelor's of Science in Physics. And uh, while you were there, you actually did some research with the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics, which is what we're going to talk about today. Some very exciting work with pulsars. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I should also say that um, you're one of our newer graduate students here at Queen's University, just starting your master's program as of September and uh, working with Professor Laura Fissel on star formation. Am, yep, am I getting right. that right? Awesome. That's right. <laughs> okay. So, Akanksha, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself beyond your academics? I hear you're an aspiring writer. Uh, that might be too strong of a statement. I'm <laughs> aspiring to be an aspiring writer. I think that's maybe more accurate. Uh, but yeah, I just started at Queen's a month ago, like Connor said. Before that, I was at the University of Toronto. I actually did engineering, so I didn't really have an astronomy background. Um, the CETA research was sort of my first um, time trying astronomical research, and it was a lot of fun. Very exciting. Starting in astronomy and heading in engineering and heading into astronomy. That's, uh, that's quite the jump. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I didn't know there was so much instrumentation in astronomy, so that's kind of a nice bridge as well. I'm not doing that much instrumentation now, but it, it's nice to know that that's also a possibility. <laughs> That is a very good connection. What, what inspired you to make that switch? Um, I think in undergrad, I was already considering uh, starting to do astronomy. Like I was looking to do a minor. That didn't happen. I applied for SERP, which is an undergraduate uh, summer research program at U of T. That didn't happen. But eventually I got the CEDA research position. And then after that, I'm not looking back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once you're in, it's exciting. All right. That's very cool. Um, so how has your transition been now that you're a new graduate student and considering the state of the world, it's probably been a very unique experience starting graduate school this way. Yeah, um, I was pretty bummed initially. I was really looking forward to moving to Kingston. Queens is such a uh, nice campus. Uh, but it's been, I think, uh, in terms of productivity, I've actually been a little bit surprised. It's been good working from home. So I think there's definitely advantages and disadvantages. Certainly um, there's no one interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except for my dog, but that's okay. That's a welcome interruption. So how about we get, get started into the 
science of the day. And can you tell me, for our listeners, just sort of your 30-second pitch for your research so we know what's going on here? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was working in radio astronomy, looking at pulsars. So I was looking specifically at the crab giant pulse, uh, the crab pulsar, um, and I was looking at some observations from the Algonquin Radio uh, Observatory. And what we found was there was this one giant pulse that really stood out to us. Um, in a group meeting, I remember everyone was huddled around looking at it, and we're saying, why does this one look so different? So if you look at that giant pulse, it uh, has these spectral bands, like a, ba like a banding pattern, and those bands appear to drift upward in frequency. And so the entire focus of my project completely shifted at that point to figuring out where these bands come from. Do other pulses show this? Is this because there was a defect in the instrument? Um, is there a physical reason this is happening? And just investigating those drifting bands. Um, and I'm not gonna give away what the final picture is, um, but that's basically what motivated us in the project. That's an excellent summary, thank you. And I think that leads us perfectly to uh, breaking down all of the individual uh, terms in there. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Algonquin Radio Observatory is and why you used it for your research? Yeah, so the Algonquin Radio Observatory is Canada's very own, one of our very own radio telescopes. And it's located in the Algonquin Provincial Park. And the reason it's there is because, um, as you and Nick were talking about in the introductory episode, uh, you get a lot of light pollution when you try to observe from the Queen's Observatory in downtown Kingston. And something similar happens in the radio uh, wavelengths when we try to observe where there's a lot of human activity. So your cell phone, your, uh, your LTE band, the Wi-Fi, that all creates a lot of radio pollution. And so we can't really see clearly in the, in the radio frequencies. We have to have it somewhere remote. So when you're actually down there on site, you have to keep your phone in airplane mode. You have to, all your internet has to be from ethernet cables. It can't be broadcasted. Okay, so uh, that's why it's located remotely. And, um, and it, was when it was initially government owned. Now it's privately run by Thought Technology. Um, we collaborate, they collaborate with a bunch of universities. And the reason we use a radio telescope is because pulsars emit in that frequency, and that's where we can see them uh, most clearly. There's two single dishes there. There's one that's 46 meters in size, and then there's a smaller one that's 10 meters in size. So all the data that I looked at was from the bigger one. Wow, you got the good telescope. That's... Yeah, actually, the, <laughs> the 10 meter wasn't working for a long time. Um, the motor doesn't work, and we recently like refurbished it and got it up and running again. That's very cool. And Algonquin, you wouldn't expect uh, you wouldn't expect there to be a big telescope in the middle of a park like that. Yeah, I don't know if many people know about it. Um, Do you ever have someone just sort of canoe up there and get so, surprised? So it's actually you're not allowed uh, because it's private property and stuff. But yeah, maybe they they see it and they're just like, "What is that?" <laughs> that would that would very much surprise me after. Yeah canoeing for hours or days into into this park and then suddenly there's giant radio. I might it's assume funny. there's an evil genius in the middle of the park somewhere. Yeah, it's funny, even when we were canoeing, um, it got dark and we couldn't actually see our way back. 
but we used like the little red lights on the telescope to like navigate. <laughs> so <laughs> it's useful for that too, I guess. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, while you're there, you have lots of opportunities to take some day trips. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's good for hiking and stuff too. And you that's... get really good night skies. It's good for stargazing. Yeah, I imagine. Algonquin is incredible for its night skies. That seems like an amazing undergraduate opportunity. So you mentioned um, that you use this telescope to look at pulsars. Can you tell us some, some information about how pulsars work and what they are? Sure, yeah. So I guess um, I could come at this from two angles. The first is how we discovered them. Um, so what happened was people started seeing these spikes in the uh, radio frequency, just these regular, very regular pulses, almost seemed so regular that it almost seemed like an artificial signal. And so the story goes, legend goes, that it was written that it was by little green men was scribbled next to the signal. And they initially thought it was uh, artificial intelligence that was sending broadcasting this very periodic, regular pulses. Um, That's very exciting. Uh, yeah. So how, how much time was it between these pulses? Fast. Some of them are on the order of seconds, and some can go as fast as the order of milliseconds. There's sort of two types. Okay. Um, so when they when they see see this thing coming every every second, they thought it might be an alien. Um, I've heard that these pulses are actually so regular that at the time they probably could have set their clock by the pulses. Yeah, exactly. So these pulses are so regular. They're um, one of the um, most sensitive clocks that we know in the universe. And this is actually a useful tool. Uh, pulsars are interesting to study for themselves, but we can also use them to study other things. For example, if you keep uh, a timing array with a bunch of pulsars, then you can detect very, very small changes in space-time or gravitational waves. And so they're also useful for detecting other things like gravitational waves because they're such sensitive clocks. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, they're super cool. So once astronomers discovered this strange signal coming, strange radio signal coming from these pulsars, were they able to figure out uh, what was going on, where this comes from? Yeah, so our current picture of pulsars is um, after massive stars die in a big explosive supernova event, two things happen. So you have your core implodes and the envelope of the star, this, uh, the uh, outer layers explode. So when the core implodes or collapses. Um, sometimes it can collapse all the way to a black hole, and that's how you get black holes. And sometimes it can collapse to what's called a neutron star. So like black holes, neutron stars are also very, very dense, not as dense, but um, uh, the, the pressure of when they collapse fuses the electrons and um, uh, protons together to form neutrons, and that's why we call them neutron stars. And because you, when you collapse something that's rotating, it begins to rotate a lot faster, like an ice skater that pulls in their arms. So you get a really highly rotating, dense star, and it's also highly magnetized. So the reason we're seeing these pulses is because um, around the magnetic poles, you're accelerating particles to very, very high speeds. And every time that magnetic pole is crossing our line of sight, you get what's called a lighthouse effect. So you're seeing a uh, a spike in emission. And so we get these two, so on each of the magnetic poles, you get these two emission uh, light beams sort of thing, and they, they cross our line of sight very regularly. And that explains the, the pulse pulse. 
That's very cool. So the it's it's basically like a space lighthouse. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these these magnetic fields, they're very strong. It makes me think of like the Northern Lights, but I guess on steroids if it's mm-hmm. projecting all the way across space. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, now there's there's pulsars all over the galaxy. We've we've detected a bunch of these. But there's one in particular that you seemed very interested in, the crab pulsar. Can you explain what this crab pulsar is and why it's so interesting? Yeah, so the crab is one of the youngest pulsars that we know of. And um, it was, so as I mentioned earlier, these pulsars are formed in the explosive supernova events. And the crab was actually uh, widely recorded in history um, in the year 1054. A lot of people in China and several historical records have noted the supernova explosion. And what makes the crab so interesting is when it has a really uh, different scattering environment because it's so young. So usually the shock front from the supernova uh, removes the gas uh, environment, but because for the crab it's still there, it's still within its nebula, it creates for a unique scattering environment. What that means is when we see the emission, it's coming from not just uh, the space between stars, the interstellar medium, it's also coming from within the nebula and that gives us a way to probe what's going on in the nebula as well. Um, The crab is also uh, known to emit something called giant pulses, which are not just uh, like regular pulses, but they're even brighter and even shorter. And so we don't quite understand their origin as of yet, but um, there's about 11 or 12 pulsars that emit these giant pulses and the crab is one of them. So that makes it even more interesting. All right. The crab pulsar sounds very interesting, a special environment for a pulsar, which is already a kind of special object. So I think this has been some great information. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few seconds after this message. Hello, Mitch here. Don't worry, I haven't gone anywhere and I'll be back in the next episode. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook at Queen's Observatory, all one word, or on Twitter at QU Observatory. If you would like to see the talks from one of our past observatory open houses, you can also check us out on our YouTube channel by searching Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. We're always happy to talk about the universe. And if you ask a really big question, we might have to just do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Let's get back to Akansha's amazing research. And welcome back. So uh, now that we've learned a little bit about the background of these pulsars, specifically the crab pulsar, we should get into a little bit more of the actual work that you've been doing or that you did while you were at U of T. So you mentioned that what you discovered was a certain type of drifting pulse. Can you tell me a little more about what these drifting pulses are and maybe paint a word picture for everyone so that they can understand what it is that you see in this data? Okay. So to work up to what is special about these drifting pulses, maybe I can first paint a picture about uh, what 
we usually see for the normal crab giant pulses. So typically in a crab giant pulse, we are observing them for a range of light in the radio spectrum that, as I mentioned earlier. So this is uh, different from what our eyes can see. Usually our eyes see from the 400 to 700 nanometers uh, wavelength of light, and those are the colors that we see. But and below those that- colors, um, so 400, is that blue or red? And 700, is that blue or red? So uh, 400 is the longer, sorry, 700 is the longer wavelength of light, so that's red. All right, so yeah, when, uh, when we're talking about these wavelengths, we can almost imagine the longer, whatever one is the longer one is, is red, and the shorter one is blue, even when it's outside of the range that we see. Exactly, exactly. So in this case, if 70 centimeters is the longer one in radio, you could say that's more red than the 30 centimeters. So continuing on, so if I have, let's say from the red to blue in my 30 to 70 centimeters, and I'm, uh, and I'm looking at the pulse over time, what I see is that uh, there's this banding pattern. And uh, sorry, I was describing the normal one. For a normal one, what I see is from the 30 to 70 centimeters, there is power throughout. So that means it's, uh, it's bright from that entire range. So it's almost like white light. You see it in all the frequencies all at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's not so much that, uh, so, the, so what, what's also important is the shape of the pulse. So these giant uh, pulses, they have a very sharp rise to begin with, and then they have a smeared out um, edge or tail that smears out in sort of an exponential way. And the reason that this happens is because at lower frequencies, you have um, something where the effect of scattering gets very pronounced. So light takes a lot longer. Certain paths of light take a lot longer at lower frequencies to reach our eye. And so we don't see a sharp pulse at the lower frequencies, but we do at a higher frequency. So you get um, a tail-like uh, shape in the, in, in the pulse. So the different colors come to you at different times in these pulses? Um, so there's a few effects going on. So one effect is called uh, dispersion, where different colors come to you at different times. And the other effect is called scattering, where um, the, the, the lower, the longer wavelengths are stretched out over time. So it's, uh, some of them come with a certain time delay. Oh, that's interesting. Different wavelengths travel to us over different amounts of time. And what, what causes them to do that? Why, why, do the diff why do the longer wavelengths take longer to get to us? So if we're talking about dispersion, um, it, that happens because of the amount of material that's between us and the pulsar, something that we call the electron column density. And this has to do with how far away the pulsar is. And it's actually a good measurement of how far away the pulsars are. Um, so if there's more electrons between you and the pulsar or just more of the interstellar space, it almost drags the lower wavelengths of light. Um, and so the lower wavelengths of light take longer, the further away the pulsar is from you. That's interesting. So empty space is actually full of all these electrons from the radio perspective. That's right. It's, it's diffuse, but they're there. And they can, they can impact the pulse that you see. That's interesting. 
Yeah, and that's actually another way pulsars are really useful. So like I mentioned earlier, there they can be probes for uh, the universe. So another way they probe is they give us a lot of information about the stuff that's between us and the pulsar. So the amount of time that it takes to travel to us, how the signal is changing if we were to observe it directly, if we were right next to the pulsar, as to uh, when it gets to us, gives us a lot of information about what's between us and the pulsar. Cool. So we can, we can study empty space, which is not Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so your, your regular pulse experiences all of these effects, and your drifting pulse then gets an extra effect on top of all these. And, and what does that one look like? So that one, so as I mentioned, usually we see the whole uh, range of light light up. But for the drifting pulses, what you actually see is sort of a banding pattern. So you have sections of the range in light that are lighting up and sections that aren't. But what's more curious is that the ones that are lighting up, they seem to drift upward um, in, in, in on the frequency axis. And um, that's very curious because it's happening not just on the duration of the pulse, but we're seeing it in that smeared out region, what's called the scattering tail. So that's giving us some hints about why we're seeing um, the drift, but it's also curious as to one of the big questions it poses is, is it intrinsic to how the pulsar is emitting? Or is it, again, because of something between us and the pulsar, we, can't, we have to sort of uh, take those two apart. So you're seeing that certain colors get more light than they should, and then as the after the initial pulse, as it's dying away, these these colors change a little bit with time. Exactly, exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. So you're seeing some sort of dependence on the color, and it's changing within the duration of the pulse. Okay. And so you're trying to figure out if this is happening at the pulse or happening between us and the pulsar? That's really the million dollar question when we see this is um, there are some effects that happen because of the way the light is being emitted and then there are some effects that are because of the changes that uh, the light goes through in traveling to us. So is it an intrinsic effect or is it a propagation effect? That's really the main question. All right. So you wanted you wanted to drill in on this question and see if you could figure it out. And I guess you, you took all of this data at the uh, Algonquin Radio Observatory. And do these pulses happen every second? Have you got many of them? Or did you have to go looking and search for them? So, um, so we tracked the crab for about an hour in 2018 and about an hour in 2015. And so I had oh, quite a lot of data um, because they're happening uh, a few times a second. Um, not all of them are bright, so not all of them are that useful uh, for me. I like to look at the super, super bright ones. Um, but in total, I categorized by eye about 150 of them. I found about, I can't forget, maybe 100,000 of them. But some of them aren't real pulses. They can be false triggers, and some of them are not in the correct uh, pulse phase. So that tells us that it's probably some noise or um, interference. So not all of those 100,000 are real pulses. So you didn't have to look at all 100,000 by <laughs> eye? No, thank God. <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> so what sorts of things cause these false pulses? What, what's going on when that happens? 
So basically in our algorithm that detects any sort of giant pulse, we just set it, you can set it arbitrarily to pick up anything that's above the noise floor. And um, sometimes our threshold is like just five. So anything that's just, uh, you know, like a little bit over the noise floor will uh, give us a trigger, um, what we call a trigger. And sometimes those things can just be, again, like your cell phone or just something with the instrument where um, we immediately know it's not a real pulse because it, it doesn't align with the time when we're expecting the pulse to arrive because we know what that should be. I see. And so the, your, your trigger is more just your instrument saying, oh, something interesting happened here. And then, then you figure out later whether it was interesting for you or just um, a little, little flash of light somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we just uh, we just let it track the crab and look at the crab for as long as it needs to. Later, we have a, a script or like just have some code that goes in and looks for any disturbances in the noise floor anytime that something and we flag those and then we take a closer look at where the real pulses or not. Okay. And so you, you had this 100,000 and you, you whittled it down to your 150 and 150 or so. And um, so you, you had this collection of these pulses to look at. And once you started looking at them, did you, were you able to figure it out? Did you answer the million dollar question? Yeah, it was, it was funny because the project was never this. The, initially, the project was to look at some other properties of these pulses. And, but when we saw this pulse, it was just so obviously different that we had to pay attention to this. And so there, to answer the million dollar question, there, um, there's a few clues already within the observation. So as I mentioned earlier, we see the change, we see the drift in the smeared out region of the pulse in what's called the scattering tail. So as you mentioned, the, uh, these pulses are coming to us a few times per second. And so and within those timescales, we don't actually expect that much to change from pulse to pulse. So if you see something happening only in one pulse and not right before or right after it, that's telling us that the pulsar itself hasn't really changed and its environment hasn't really changed, but something else must be happening in the unique time that we've seen it um, and captured it. And it can't be the instrument either. We don't expect the instrument to change so quickly that it would only impact one pulse and not the pulses around it. So that's a fairly good clue also of what's going on. So you were able to tell that there was something weird about these pulses individually, because you know that none of the other conditions are really changing at that fast on a per pulse basis. Exactly. So, so what do you think was special about this pulse that made it different? from the others, what was going on there? Right, so first of all, it has the spectral bands, which we're still not quite sure how that happens. Um, this has been seen in other frequencies, and right now what we're thinking is that it's most likely, the bands are most likely intrinsic. So that's probably coming from the pulsar itself, but the drift that we're seeing in the scattering tail, again, is probably a propagation effect. And so, uh, what we're proposing, the reason that we saw the drift in this pulsar, one, was because it was really bright, so we were actually able to see the uh, change by eye. Um, two, it had bands, which not all of them do, so maybe the ones that don't have these bands are also drifting, it's just we can't see it because there's no indication of when the colors, when there's um, a shift in the colors because it's broadband. And um, three, what happened is it has to line up 
in our line of sight in a certain way for us to actually see the drift. And what I mean by that is, um, let me think of how to say that. So is there a, a chunk of material that's thrown off the pulsar and, and yeah. that so gets there, into plasma? Right, so there, it's, it's accreting like a lot of charged material. And so that's what's accelerating at relativistic speeds. And that's what's gonna cause uh, the radiation that you see Doppler shifted. So it's a, a chunk of material as it's falling into the pulsar. It's, it's falling out, yeah. It's being, uh, yeah. Oh, so it's an, ex it's an extra little clump of plasma that gets sort of caught up and shot out of the pulsar. Yes, yes. Okay. And so they get. So it's, it sort of like falls onto the pulsar, gets pulled up by the magnetic fields and shot out. And yeah, I, it might just be the plasma of the pulsar that's being like ripped out. Okay, wow. Those are some strong magnetic fields, my goodness. All right, I think that's a good point for us to take a break. Um, we'll hear our second segment from Nick, and we'll be back in just a few seconds. Hi, it's Nick again. While we are really proud of our content here at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. If you can't just get enough of science, you should check out the McDonald Institute on Facebook and Twitter. They are dedicated to advancing astroparticle physics in Canada and have been a big supporter of us here at the observatory. You can also look up your local branch of the Royal Astronomical Society. They can teach you how to get into astronomy from your own backyard. And finally, the Astronomy on Tap program is an excellent way to learn about astronomy in a more casual environment. Link to all of these online programs will be mentioned in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to these fascinating pulsars. Okay, so you've you've found these pulses, these giant pulses and all this data, this 100,000 uh, triggers in your data set. So now that you've found these and looked at a bunch of them, can you tell us what it is that you sort of puzzled for this million dollar question, what might be explaining what's going on here? Right, so there's actually some hints within the data itself. So one of the first, first thoughts that we had and first things you should always check is, is it your instrument that's going wrong? And so what we can do to check that, first of all, is, is, the, entire, uh, is the entire data around the pulse and including the pulse have a drift somehow? And this is where actually the radio noise that I was talking about earlier actually comes into handy because we don't expect, uh, so we can see the cell phone LTE band in our, um, in our data and we don't expect that to be drifting. So what you can do is you can actually check that your noise from the cell phone band is staying constant with time. And if that's staying constant, then you're, it's only the pulse that's drifting. It's not your entire data. So that was one check that we... You can, you can hear the LTE data from people's cell phones. Are you, able to, are you able to figure out what people are talking about? I mean, that's probably a privacy concern. Uh, I don't know. No one's ever tried that, but that would be interesting. We have, um, like, I, I think we tried playing, like, radio data that we've gotten before. Um, like, from the radio, I mean. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah I the mean, cell phone might be. Cell phone data, I think, might be encrypted. So yeah, <laughs> you, you probably can't 
hear any of that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so you check against these uh, sort of constant sources, such as the LTE band, and, right. and you were able to determine it's not your uh, instrument that's causing the problem. So what else did you do? And then you can also take a look at the pulses before and after the drifting one. So we know that they're coming in really fast. As I mentioned earlier, you're getting a few pulses a second. And so within that time, we're not actually expecting if there's a defect with the instrument, if there's something going on in the pulsar environment or within the pulsar itself, we don't expect it to change that quickly. So if there's some effect happening at the pulsar level or at the instrument level, we should expect to see it for pulses before and after too. But that's not what we're seeing. We see that the drift happens just for that one single pulse and not the pulses around it. So that's giving us some clue of what's happening. The other and the most important clue of whether it's a propagation effect or whether if it's intrinsic to the pulsar is that we see this drifting of color um, within the scattering tail. So as I mentioned earlier, the scattering is an effect of uh, propagation of what's between us and the pulsar. And so because we're seeing the drift also in the scattering tail, that gives us a hint that it's probably not intrinsic to the pulsar. Oh, right, because that scattering tail doesn't happen at the pulsar. That's some of the material between us and the pulsar. Exactly. If I were to take an observation of the pulsar standing right next to it, there would be no scattering tail. So you'd, you'd never see these drifting pulses if you were standing on a pulsar. So that's what we are proposing. Now, um, there's other papers. Uh, there's observations in even higher frequencies that see uh, drifts and that are not in the scattering tail that are on the duration of the pulse. And so that's also curious why that happens. And we think it might be a physically different reason from ours since ours is in the scattering tail. So we think those drifts might actually be intrinsic to the pulsar and it's not clear why they're happening. And that's a completely different scenario than what we're proposing. Okay, so you, you seem to have checked all your bases and been very careful here. So you've, uh, you've got rid of any potential interloping data and now, now that you've got an idea of where this uh, drift is happening, did you, do you have a model for what's making it drift the way that it does? Yeah, exactly. So um, as I mentioned, it's happening in the scattering tail. So the reason we get scattering is, or a, a way we can model scattering, I should say, is that we can use almost like a lens or a screen and that um, causes light to bend. And it can bend uh, for longer lengths, path lengths to, our, to us and shorter path lengths to us. And um, so the ones that are traveling a little bit longer path length, we're thinking that in this pulse, they're actually being Doppler shifted. So Doppler shifts, you know, everyone knows the common example of the car that drives by you and you hear that, that neo-classic <laughs> sound. And so this can also happen uh, for light, and, but usually don't see that in our everyday experience because the source that's emitting the radiation would have to be traveling very, very fast. And we don't really see that in our everyday experience. But with this pulsar that is, uh, that is accelerating these charged particles um, very, very fast, we do get light uh, speeds of, um, uh, of those sources of emission that approach the speed of light. And so we can have this effect where the light itself is either going bluer or redder, as we mentioned earlier. 
And so we think the light that has been scattered, the reason we're seeing it drift upward is that we're actually seeing it go bluer. So you're, you're seeing the color change to look more blue um, inside the pulse. And that's, and you, you've sort of figured out that it has to be something between the pulsar and us. And you think, is it the, is it the crab nebula itself or is it all of the space in between? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So usually for pulsars, um, I, like I mentioned, we usually place the screen somewhere between us and the pulsar, and that's usually in the space in between the interstellar medium. But like I mentioned earlier, the crab actually has a more of a special scattering environment because it's still within its nebula. So you get more scattering in the nebula for the crab than you do within the space between us and the pulsar. So for the crab, we actually place this scattering screen or most of the scattering event within the nebula. So it's happening very, very close to the pulsar itself. And we think that might actually be a reason why we um, see a drift in the, in the crab pulsar and not other pulsars. And that's because when you place the screen that close to the pulsar, your a change in your viewing angle or the amount of light that you're seeing bend is larger than it would be for uh, other pulsars that uh, we place a scattering screen somewhere in between. And the scattering screen you said was kind of like a lens. So these, these radio waves that you're looking at, they almost see the, the big crab nebula as a big pair of glasses almost is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. But it's a very complicated pair of glasses. So <laughs> how your glasses are either convex or concave, this is like some kind of weird geomet geometry of a mix of concave and convex and having patches that are magnifying and some that are not magnifying. So it's, uh, it's like a glasses, but a lot more complicated. So it's almost like um, one of those kaleidoscopes. Yeah, like Instead a house of mirrors. Of... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so the Crab Nebula is a house of mirrors for these radio pulses. And so what you're, what you're thinking is that some part of the pulse hits just the right part of this house of mirrors. And so we get, we get to see it twice, once coming straight towards us and once after bouncing off of this mirror, almost. Well, it's a lens, it's not a mirror, but that's, that's sort of what you're thinking. Yeah, that, that's a really good way to put it. Um, so usually you see it bounce off a bunch of different lenses and it comes again in that scattered way. But we're thinking this one bounced and then also because it was coming up to us from an angle, it was shifted, uh, Doppler shifted. Oh, okay. So um, because it's a different part of the pulse, it's at a different amount of blue shift is what you're thinking. The, the part of the pulse that was aimed at that other lens mirror house of mirrors thing that that part was at a different blue shift than the part that was pointed directly at us that's exactly right so you have um you have some time in the pulse that's arrived to you sooner and then you have a certain time delay in the pulse that's arriving slightly from a longer path that's arriving that's arriving later so this upward drift is the part that arrived later arrived at a slightly different frequency so so what we see is the, the pulse that has a bit of color to it, this sort of strange pulse, gets a little more blue with time as, it, as it's sort of fading away. Exactly. Very neat. And you, you can learn all this about the inside of the Crab Nebula just from seeing this little, little bit of light get slightly more blue 
over the course of fractions of a second. That's right. And this is the one pulse that we've seen this in, but that doesn't mean it's the only type that's possible. So one thing that this model predicts is that you can also get it the other way, um, where you can see light become slower, become more red, um, and or you can have a mix and match. And we actually have one another pulse that seems to meet this criteria, where parts of it seem um, bluer shifted and other parts of it seem red shifted. And this is because we don't really know the geometry of that lens again. We, it's, it's complicated. Um, so there's a bunch of different things and mix and match that could happen. That's pretty wild. So it's some parts of it are changing in one way and some parts the other way. It's, it's really making me think of this house of mirrors that you said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we got lucky with this first pulse that it had um, maybe a, a simpler shift and our model was able to match what we observed quite well. And so that was nice. But for this other pulse we have that has a red and blue, that's a little, that would require a bit more of a complex setup to be able to model that well. But our first pulse we are able to model quite well. So that's exciting. That's very cool. So you can, you can actually sort of start to tease out the physical effects that are going on and do the math, which we are not going to cover in, in this podcast here. <laughs> that's right. Yep. So, so now that you've uh, sort of got this model up and running and it seems to be fitting the data really well, uh, what, are, what are some next steps for this project? What, what new thing can you do to sort of prove that you've, you're on the right track? Yeah, so with lots of exciting things in store. So first of all, um, because this is such a small sample size, we only have one we see like this and another one potentially. So we only have two drifting pulses that we can kind of say. Um, so what we need to do is observe more. That's first and foremost. So right now, something exciting that's happening. Um, we have another famous Canadian uh, radio telescope called CHIME. And what we're doing with CHIME is every single day, it's looking at the crab, it's storing the data, looking for the giant pulses, and then deleting all the data that we didn't need. And it's doing this every single day. So it's building up a bank of a lot of giant pulses. This is, gives us a great opportunity to find more drifting ones. Um, again, CHIME looks at the same range of light that Algonquin Radio Telescope looks at. So that's a really good way of comparing apples to apples. And um, the other great thing is um, uh, there's other low frequency telescopes that we can also check. For example, LOFAR, another one in Canada is the Dominican a DRO. And um, so there's many things we can do now. Now, if you remember, I looked at those 150 pulses by eye, and that's very tedious. Um, but what you can do is you can actually um, make a turn this into an algorithm to speed it up. So you can take pulses and split them in two. And we have a way of comparing the first half and the second half to see if they match. It's called uh, autocorrelation. And if you autocorrelate the pulse with itself, you'll see if there's any drastic changes uh, between the first and second half. So we can actually create an algorithm to try and find these drifting pulses faster. Um, other things that we have, um, and I think it'll be great if, if either we're able to find more or not, that will immediately either rule out or strengthen this model. That's very exciting. I look forward to hearing more about this data and these tests that you're talking about. So this is some very interesting astronomy going on here. And you are really just beginning your career. This was 
work that you did in your undergraduate studies, which is remarkably impressive. Now you're on to your master's here at Queen's University. Can you tell us a little bit about what the next steps are for you? Yeah, so I just started at Queen's, as you mentioned, in September. Um, I'm a first year master's student, so I'm gonna be working in star formation now and particularly looking at open questions around star formation rate. Um, it's a lot lower, the rate at which stars form than what we expect. And so it's quite curious as to why that is. So I'll be looking at um, some lot of interesting data of high mass star forming regions to try and figure out what's going on there. Uh, the interplay between magnetic fields, is it the turbulence, is it radiation pressure, what causes um, star formation efficiency to be so low. Interesting. You're on to another mystery already. <laughs> another million dollar question. Yeah, so that's right. stars seem related, but still pretty different from pulsars, star formation. Um, so can you tell us how the project that you did in your undergraduate studies at Toronto sort of influenced your path to come here to Queen's University? How did, how did that connection get made? Yeah, first I was looking at star corpses, now I'm looking at star babies. So <laughs> um, yeah, I guess my previous project was really a, almost a contingency sort of test for me to see whether I enjoyed research in astronomy. Um, and it was such an exciting project. And like you said, I, it's, uh, it, it, I was really lucky to have this experience in undergrad. Um, and so, it, that was it. That was a deciding factor for me. I had so much fun in that project that I knew I wanted to continue, which I didn't know that uh, before I started working on the Crab Pulses project. And so my immediate next step was to figure out uh, where I can go and continue this kind of research. And I'm so happy to be at Queen's. And um, I think Laura Fissel is doing some really interesting, exciting work. And I'm so happy to be a part of it. That's very cool. So, uh... You mentioned Laura is doing some interesting work. Can you give us a um, sort of intro to what sort of work Laura Fizzle does, just to give us some context? Yeah, so Laura does some really exciting stuff. She, it was funny when I contacted her as a potential supervisor, she was in Antarctica. <laughs> and she's like, I have no internet right now. I'm in Antarctica. Um, so wait till I'm back and then we'll Skype. And I already at that point, I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. What is she doing in Antarctica? So she goes, she was there last, uh, last year around this time to uh, fly um, balloon telescopes. So you can have telescopes on the ground that are ground-based telescopes, or you can, sometimes you need to get above the Earth's atmosphere because that can block out some light um, to get a good observation. So she actually flies balloons above the Earth's atmosphere and goes to Antarctica because they have really long days um, to fly those balloon telescopes. And so she's also trying to figure out questions around star formation. Um, she looks at different polarization maps of star forming regions. Um, another telescope is one that, again, you have to go above the Earth's atmosphere. So it's on an airplane called the Sophia telescope. And so she also works on instrumentation of building these balloon telescopes. And I think that's super, super exciting. I know she has a proposal in right now um, for uh, uh, for, for this as well. That's really exciting. Who would think that astronomy would take you all the way to Antarctica? <laughs> exactly. Wow, and a balloon-born telescope. That's mm -hmm. quite the project. I, I imagine we'll have to cover that at the Fast Radio Burst podcast as well. 
Yeah, you should. Yep. Are there any um, closing thoughts you'd like to tell us about this experience, what it's meant to you and uh, what it's been like? Well, one thing I think just uh, that I remembered when you mentioned the name of the podcast, uh, one thing that's interesting about these drifting pulses, you actually see a lot of these drifts and oblique patterns in fast radio bursts. So there's a curious connection there of maybe that's related, maybe it's not, it's probably not, but um, that's interesting to note as well. And overall, yeah, it was a great project. Hopefully it will be publishing soon. Um, hopefully there's a lot of follow-up. I, I, I wanna see where this goes, maybe not directly by me, but by collaborators. And uh, yeah, it's been great fun. Well, I'll be watching your career with great interest. Thank you for coming on to our Fast Radio Bursts podcast and sort of kicking off our interview program. This has been sort of a, a fun one to prepare for and a really neat little uh, bit of research to sort of learn about. I normally study galaxies on the very large scale. So learning about these pulsars has been quite fun for me as well. So thanks yeah, for- Yeah, thanks for having me, Connor. This was great. Thanks for joining us. All right. And I, I think that concludes it for today. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.